Many a small town in the American West exhibit a sense of identity rooted in specific rememberings of earlier frontier and pioneer heritage, and in ways that more demographically dynamic urban or suburban Western cities might not. I suspect many of us are familiar with such places, either having lived in one, had relatives in one, or played tourist in one. It is thus unsurprising that the longtime residents of such places might feel threatened when dramatic modern change finally does come to their town. Welcome to Riding Westward. I'm your host, Brennan Rensink, and this month we speak with historian Timothy Paul Bowman, who explores one such story in his book, You Will Never Be One of Us, A Teacher, A Texas Town, and the Rural Roots of Radical Conservatism, published by the University of Oklahoma Press in 2022. The seemingly narrow and admittedly obscure history from the 1970s speaks powerfully to social, cultural, and political climates around the rural West then and today. Thanks for listening. For new listeners, allow me to take a moment to explain a bit about writing Westward and myself. Each episode features a conversation with people writing about the North American West. Historians, journalists, novelists, poets, scientists, sociologists, and others. By showcasing their work, I hope to spark your curiosity to think more deeply about the region, its lands and environments, and the histories and experiences of the peoples who call it home. If a writer or topic intrigues you, you can find links to their work in the show notes or at writingwestward.org. And if you have a moment, please do subscribe, share links with friends, leave us a review or rating on Apple Podcasts or whatever platform you're using to listen, follow us on Facebook and Twitter, and send in some feedback. Writing Westward is supported by the Charles Red Center for Western Studies at Brigham Young University, where I, Brendan Rensink, serve as Associate Director and an Associate Professor of History. For better or worse, this is a one-man operation. With me playing role of host, producer, sound engineer, publicist, and everything else. All tasks for which I have no training. But I am passionate about the North American West, so this difficult work is well worth the excuse to read more books and talk to interesting people. At the end of each episode, I'll include a little bit more information about me and my scholarship, and about the Red Center, our public programming and projects, and funding opportunities that you could apply for. With that, let me introduce a little bit more about today's guest, and why we're talking to them. Timothy Paul Bowman is Associate Professor of History and Chair of the Department of History at West Texas A&M University, where he has also helped administer the Center for the Study of the American West. Bowman earned a bachelor's degree from Texas Christian University, a master's from the University of Texas Arlington, and a PhD from Southern Methodist University. In 2016, he published a book, Blood Oranges, Agriculture and Racial Difference in the Texas-Mexico Borderlands, 1900-1975 published by the Texas A&M University Press. His recent book that we discussed today, You Will Never Be One of Us, A Teacher, A Texas Town, and the Rural Roots of Radical Conservatism, was published by the University of Oklahoma Press in 2022. This book finds Bowman writing about an obscure story that unfolded in the very locales where he now lives and teaches. He relates the story of a popular young English teacher in Hereford, Texas, Wayne Woodward who in 1975 was fired by the school district after founding a local chapter of the American Civil Liberties Union, the ACLU. Wayne filed suit and won. The judge ruled that his First and Fourteenth Amendment rights had been violated. 
Rather than being let go due to job performance or breaking of school policies, as the defendants claimed, his team successfully argued that he had been fired for his off-campus activities that local conservative elites and school administrators viewed as politically unacceptable or otherwise disruptive to the community. While this small West Texas panhandle microhistory is narrow in scope, Bowman uses it to shine a light on a number of much broader trends in the development of 20th century conservatism. Most convincingly, he explores a number of ways in which rural resistance to progressive change was more rooted in a desire to maintain a certain status quo steeped in local pioneer heritage and the resulting self-conceived frontier identities than, say, in partisan or political ideology. The disruption that various branches of the civil rights movement had caused in other rural western locales had largely skipped over Hereford, and the ruling elites wanted to keep it that way. By 1975, however, an influx of agricultural labors resulted in Hereford becoming a majority-minority town, and this seemed to cause unease among the older Anglo populations. Bowman concludes at one point, quote, Clearly, Woodward, in the eyes of locals, served as a stand-in for either the students' rights cases, workers' rights cases, or perhaps even both. This unique Texas panhandle story may have much wider resonance than you would imagine, as rural-urban, insider-outsider, and other familiar dynamics play out in Hereford, as they have in so many other places in the rural West. Professor Timothy Bowman, welcome to Writing Westward. Thanks for having me, Brandon. I'm excited to talk to you today. Yeah, I'm really excited uh, to get back down to Texas. Uh, we've covered some Texas history in previous episodes, but clearly not enough. <laughs> well, I, you know, I think uh, Texas is sort of, a, you know, a regional misfit in uh, North American history, right? Like we're not exactly Southern. We're not exactly Western. We're sort of a mishmash. So, um, but yeah, happy to happy to be with you. I've been looking forward to this for a long time. Well, perhaps we can first lay out a real quick, uh, you know, thumbnail of the history that you tell in this book, and then we can transition to kind of what it all means uh, for, sure. the broad, for the broader West. Sure. So the the brief overview is that in 1975, a, a seemingly popular junior high English teacher named Wayne Woodward in a rural panhandle West Texas town of um, Herf is it Hereford or Hereford? Um, it's Hereford. When Herford. I moved here, I pronounced okay. it Hereford, and people laughed at me. Hereford, like the cow. Hereford, <laughs> Herford, kind of yeah, cow. yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh huh. So in Hereford, um, and he's fired, and he had recently established a local chapter of the ACLU, and he suspected he was targeted politically because of that. He files a lawsuit claiming that he was fired for this, and uh, ends up winning that lawsuit. Is that a fair? That's correct. Yeah, yeah. He uh, he wins his lawsuit in the district court, and the school district appealed. And then in early 1977, um, the two sides settled out of court. And Wayne, who still lives in the area today, he lives in a little community called Lake Tanglewood, which is sort of between Amarillo and Canyon, which is where my university, uh, West Texas A&M, is located. Um, never taught again after that, sadly. So how did you get to this project? Uh, I think I can guess somewhat because it's local to where you live now. Sure. But thematically, how does this connect with other work that you've done previously and what grabbed you about this story? Um, you know, it's interesting because I think um, 
you know, when I got into writing the book, um, it wasn't even really clear to me thematically how it connected to my earlier work, like my my first book or, um, you know, the next project that's coming. But um, what happened was right around the time my first book was about to come out, which would have been the spring of 2016, I got an email from Wayne and I'd never met him. I'd never heard of him. And he said, Hey, I've got this incredible story um, of something that happened to me when I was a school teacher in Hereford in the 70s. Um, I'm getting a little older now. I think he was, um, I guess he was about 70 years old at the time. And he really, really wanted somebody to write this story. Um, and I, you know, I don't know about you, but I, it, I've been teaching for, I'm in the middle of year 10 at WT now, which is just crazy to think how fast it's gone by. And there have been moments over the course of my career where people have just sent me a cold email and said, Hey, I've got this great idea for something that you should do. And, um, you know, usually it turns out to be just, you know, nothing. Like I, I can remember a, um, a guy who was purportedly a film producer emailed me and said, Hey, you should write a script on the battle of the Alamo because you do Texas history. And I thought, okay, yeah. What do I know about writing screenplays? Right. But anyway, um, so Wayne sent me this email and my new book, my first book was about to come out and I was sort of in a, kind of that weird kind of awkward phase between projects like one big thing is finally done that's taken years to finish and um, I don't know what's going to come next and so he told me a little bit about his story and I honestly probably wouldn't have thought much of it were it not for the fact that in his email he mentioned to me that he had reached out to Vicky Ruiz who's a major historian, right? I, somebody who um, most of us who studied the Southwest or the border read in graduate school wrote a great book called Cannery Women, Cannery Lives about um, Yukapawa and um, labor organizing in California. And Wayne told me that um, Professor Ruiz was interested in his story, but said she couldn't do it because she was deep into, into working on something else. And so I thought, okay, well, if somebody like Vicky Ruiz took this guy seriously, then obviously I need to take him seriously too. So um, I thought, what the heck, I'll meet up with him and, um, you know, it, wor worst possible outcome is that there's nothing here and I just sort of move on with my life and that's that. So we got together for coffee in Amarillo and he told me the story, the gist of which you had just, um, you had just mentioned. And of course, the the key to getting this done um, would be whether or not he'd saved any documents, right? And he didn't mention any of this. We probably talked for about two hours. And um, so I said, you know, Wayne, I'm really interested in potentially doing something with this. I didn't know if it would be like a, you know, um, a journal article or, um, you know, a, a sort of a, you know, a piece that I could send off to a popular magazine or something or a book. Um, but I told him that, you know, what would really make the difference was whether or not he had documents and he smiled and he said he had um, an attic full of them. So I went over to his house and when I got there, he had boxes of stuff, depositions, newspaper clippings, um, cassette tape recordings, transcripts, all kinds of things. And um, he just let me take the material um, home. So I took it home and I just, you know, um, despite the fact that I had zero experience in political history at all at the time, um, or local history, well, you know, local or regional Texas panhandle history, it just, it just sort of felt right. You know, like it, it felt like a book to me. And 
what I really liked about it was um, this, um, you know, this cache of documents and this story, it gave me the chance to take sort of a, you know, a snapshot from one person's life and just tell a really compelling, or what I felt was a really compelling narrative over, you know, five, six, I guess it turned out to be seven chapters, right? And that was something that was far different from, you know, writing a dissertation and doing a first book. It was, you know, I mean, there was a lot of theory and, you know, there's historiography in this book, but they're, you know, sort of different sort of subsets of literature that the, that, you know, I wanted to speak to with the first one. And it just, it felt, um, I don't know, it, it, it just felt so, um, I don't know what the word is that I'm looking for. There had been so many different voices who had fed into it and so much time that had gone into that, that like, I just wanted to tell a good story. Right. And um, so that was how I got into this, this project um, and was motivated to do it. It was more about sort of writing something that was compelling, doing it in a way that would um, appeal to scholars, right? People who understand Texas or who study Texas history or study um, the history of conservatism or politics of the 1970s and um, just putting it out. So it just, it felt good. So that was, yeah. that was sort of how I got to it. It felt much different than doing the first book, right? Which I'm sure you can relate to also in your experience. Yeah, it seems like it ticked off a lot of the boxes that I always talk with students about that, you know, first a project needs to be worth doing. And mm -hmm. I think most any interesting story, if you're passionate about it, then it's worth working on, right? Yeah. And I say, but is it doable? Yeah. If, do the sources exist? So sure. the fact that he had this attic full of this whole archive that he had kept mean meant that it was also some a project you could do. It was amazing, right? I mean, this is like every historian's dream. Someone's just handing you an archive and saying, here, write the book. Um, it was really, um, um, for me at least, it was serendipitous. And uh, it was a lot of fun to do. And, um, you know, I made a good friend in the process. I, you know, got to know Wayne really well and his wife, Linda. And, um, you know, we'll consider them friends forever. And that's also... You know, that's one of the things that's really um, um, nice about doing modern history, right? The histories of people who were still living is you get to see sort of what it what it means to them, you know, and, you know, to know what it meant to Wayne. We did a book signing event in uh, in Canyon back in uh, September, I think it was. And to, you know, to just imagine, you know, here's a guy who's now in his late 70s, who's had this experience for, you know, just sort of living with him for 40 or 50 years. And then to be able to actually, you know, hold the story in his hands um, is really, uh, um, it was just, it was really special for me. It was really That's nice. That's powerful. Yeah, yeah thank uh, you. Something that we often don't, don't get to experience as a story. Yeah, yeah. So pre-1975, before... Uh, he gets fired. What what was tell us really quickly Wayne Woodward's background. You you note that he was not some uh, crazy radical political activist. Not at all. Yeah. Even if that's a little bit of how he was painted um, by the public in in this trial. Like who was he coming into this experience? So Wayne um, grew up in Amarillo. He went to um, high school and, you know, I live in Amarillo. So he went to a high school that's not far from where I live and then um, was a student at um, West Texas State University, which is now West Texas A&M where I teach. And, um, you know, um, he would say that he was just um, a normal kid growing up. Um, 
you know, in a, um, several of the interviews that he sat with me for, he mentioned um, becoming aware of segregation and racism as a young boy in the 50s and knowing that it was wrong and questioning his mom about it and um, seeing how African-American and uh, Mexican-American students were treated and having a real problem with it. But um, but yeah, I mean, he um, he was someone who I think questioned the world around him, had a propensity for questioning authority, which I think is something that got him into trouble as a, you know, a young, um, early 30s idealistic English teacher. But um, yeah, wasn't a hippie, um, wasn't really involved with the movement in the 60s, which, you know, I mean, of course, on uh, college campuses out here in West Texas, um, civil rights movement was generally pretty quiet. I think, or at least that's the impression that I got from Wayne and some of the other people that I interviewed for the book. Um, but anyway, so he graduated from West Texas State in 1968, and he got a job. So he has had a teaching degree. So he got a job um, teaching history at a school in um, the Death Valley in California. So he drove out there on his own. And he went and taught and he decided that he just he hated being out there. California felt weird. Right. Which is definitely like De a Death Valley, especially. Yeah, right. <laughs> I've, I've never been. But um, and he wanted to come back. So a friend of his, um, a, uh, a history teacher named Bruce Logan, who plays a role in the book, um, taught at La Plata Junior High School in Hereford and uh, told him that they needed someone to teach seventh and ninth grade English. So. He applied for the job and he got it. And um, I think, you know, one of the things that I, I try to do in the book is to to sort of understand the political culture of um, Hereford and towns like Hereford in the 1960s and sort of how um, Hereford was at kind of a tipping point, right, in terms of um, um, more conservative sort of rural minded Texans. Um, uh, uh, you know, sort of looking askance at what's been going on on college campuses in the 60s or, you know, with the Democratic Party or which, of course, you know, the uh, Texas Democratic Party was experiencing all kinds of um, historic changes at the time. Um, and so Wayne uh, rolls into town. He gets this job. He rolls into town in the summer of 1969 with California license plates. He had long hair. Right. And in those days, of course, you know, if you live in a small town, long hair doesn't, if you're a guy, doesn't mean down to your shoulders. It just means sort of covering your ears, right? Yeah. But he rolls into town um, with long hair and sort of California license plates, and he's fired up with all these ideas about changing the world and everything. And I think to um, a lot of people locally, he looked different, right? Like he, he, he unintentionally stood for, um, change that people were seeing that they weren't necessarily comfortable with even though he himself didn't identify with the civil rights movement or um you know liberalism necessarily or activism or or whatever um so he kind of gets painted as an outsider visually very quickly yeah even though he's a west texas boy he's a west texas guy himself yeah but yeah. i think um nonetheless he um you know i I really think that he, you know, yeah, he stepped in as someone who didn't really fit. But, you know, one of the things that I, I do think is important to say is that, you know, for me, this book was about 
it, you know, as interesting as Wayne is as a person and as much as I personally like him, this book was more for me about understanding his antagonist than it was about understanding Wayne and what motivated him. And um, so I, you know, I, I think it's important to say that um, it's not as if people were like out to get him from the beginning, right? Like, I think he was sort of, um, he was a bit of an oddity. He was outspoken at the school. Um, he had some run-in, run-ins with um, Robert Patterson Hughes, which was one of the administrators who eventually um, fired him when he became principal. But um, I, you know, I really, I, I really think that by the time he founded a local chapter of the American Civil Liberties Union in early 1975, the people of Hereford who wanted him gone really thought that they were doing the right thing, right? Like, it's not as if they were saying, oh, well, let's just get rid of this hippie weirdo or whatever. Or His constitutional rights don't matter or anything like that. They really thought that they were doing something to protect their community from a threat. And so as the story unfolds in the book, that was something that I really wanted to take seriously and try to understand, you know, I didn't want this to be, I didn't want this to be a story where these people and their fears and their motives were dismissed. They deserve to be taken seriously on their own right. Um, and it's the context in which the story unfolds to, to not yeah. give that full treatments. It's, it's not the whole story. Yes. Yeah. I mean, you already touched on this briefly, but Panhandle West Texas is kind of an out of the way place. Uh-huh. You write a lot about how it is somewhat isolated from uh-huh. some national trends things going on with the civil rights movement and the counterculture in the 60s. Um, but they're aware of what's going on out in the rest of the nation. So if if that's kind of who Wayne is by 1975, how are the people who become his antagonists, how are they thinking about themselves, about their West Texas rural community that they're trying to protect from the perceived threat that Wayne eventually presents? Um, how are they viewing themselves and why is Wayne and specifically the ACLU threatening to them? That's a great question. Um, and that really, um, again, you know, that was answering that question really motivated me to write this book. And it's, you know, it's no coincidence. I, I think that, um, you know, I, you know, someone who, who grew up, uh, my parents are Canadian, but I grew up in Fort Worth. Uh, you know, I, I moved to West Texas, um, in 2012 and um this was right around the time of trump you know coming up in american politics and getting elected president and i really um you know i really wanted to understand um why someone would why someone would find that kind of politics appealing right the sort of the bulldog kind of anti-democratic or anti anti-liberal politics because these were things that i was completely naive to or ignorant of at least up until 20, 2016 right um so um the early part of the book um you know i i think that this book is something of a micro history right and that it takes this kind of snapshot and tries to kind of you know draw large scale conclusions from it and um so the book does get into the context of euro-american settlement of the panhandle um, but also historical memory here. Um, and uh, in the, and you talk about a lot t- of local pride in kind of frontier individualism. Yeah, which frontier is individualism. Across the West, you know, we're rugged individuals and that's who settled our community. But right, yeah, yeah. It's you a think common... that that's, there's a unique kind of panhandle version of that? 
I, you know, I, I think that it's, it's unique in certain respects, right? So like, um, the panhandle relative to the, to the rest of the West is settled by English speaking people kind of late, right? Like, I mean, this is a post-Civil War sort of story and really, I, you know, you get some famous ranchers, probably Charles Goodnight being the, you know, the most prominent example who, um, began to settle the region, region in the 1870s. And then it's kind of like a typical story, right? Like you get, you get ranchers who come in, um, they do well for a while, um, you know, livestock's not doing so well in the early 20th century. So then they turn to real estate and bringing in farmers and, um, you know, um, uh, platting lands for, um, you know, commercial farming. And so um, interestingly, um, I think um, part of the story also, um, or part of the story, you know, I, I, I think we have to, and one of the things I do in the book is we have to look at like um, the role that historians play in crafting regional identity. And so one of the really interesting aspects of regional history here is um, there was a push by an organization called the Panhandle Plains Historical Society to craft one of the first history museums in the state, um, which they founded and opened in 1933. And um, I think they were the maybe the second um, big public uh, um, history museum in the state behind the Witte Museum in San Antonio, if I'm not mistaken. Um, that could be wrong, but I don't think I don't think it is. Um, anyway, a number of those people were involved in the history department at West Texas State Normal College, which is the department that I now chair. Um, <laughs> and um, if you look into some of the things that um, these historians were saying about the region and the things that they were writing, it was completely, of course, informed by Frederick Jackson Turner. Some of these people had just barely, you know, one degree of separation from Turner himself in terms of professional training. So, um, for example, um, Hattie Anderson, who um, had a master's degree from the University of Missouri, um, wrote um, eventually a dissertation after she was employed here about um, frontier identity in the Jacksonian period in Missouri, right? And how like, you know, this led to, you know, a lot of the things that you were just mentioning, this, you know, sort of rugged individualism and self-reliance for people in that state. Um, even Angie Debo, who obviously is a famous Native American historian who was here for a few years, um, um, kind of fed into that larger narrative, right? And so when this big museum is opened in 1933, um, it's open under the premise that we need to preserve the histories of the so-called pioneer generation who were still alive in the 1920s and 30s. These people who went West, defeated the Indians and all of that kind of stuff. And um, uh, yeah, so I think, you know, by the time we get to the 70s, we're really only like one generation removed from that, right? So these ideas about history are still really popular locally. And, um, you know, obviously, as well as I do, that historical memory gets politicized all the time. So, you know, when all of this is happening at the local level, and it's concurrent to, uh, you know, um, modern liberalism under FDR and the New Deal, which was hugely important here in the Texas panhandle, as it was, um, you know, everywhere else throughout the West, right? I just read Sarah Deutsch's um, big new book, um, and she, you know, uh, she um, teases all of that out, you know, expertly, right? But um, 
you know, and then the sort of the the growing conservative backlash in the 30s, 40s, 50s and 60s, right, against what the Democratic Party seems to be standing for. All of these different threads sort of come together. And I think that Wayne's story in the book essentially shows why a young person who was simply a member of the civil rights generation, even though he wasn't um, an activist or, um, you know, out sort of leading marches or anything, why he would be seen as a dangerous threat. Now, getting at your question of of him being a threat, I mean, I think Wayne um, Wayne didn't really know much about the ACLU when he agreed to found this local chapter. He didn't know anything about um, the organization's background in, you know, left-leaning politics in the early 20th century, right, which is a true thing. Um, and Wayne was also, I think, someone, if anything, I think that he... I think that he um, had a huge heart for um, his Mexican and Mexican-American students in Hereford and starting, um, and I get at this in the book a little bit, but starting the ACLU chapter locally um, made people fear that Hereford's agribusiness sector is going to be disrupted in the 70s by like a, you know, a United Farm Workers kind of style activism that Mexican-American um um, workers are going to be out protesting. The whole thing's going to fall. The whole town's economy is going to fall apart, and all of that kind of stuff, right? And um, ironically, the and I don't get at this at the book, but ironically, the farm workers movement does eventually come to Hereford in 1980, and we talk about that later. That kind of informs some of the next stuff that I'm I'm doing. So by 70, 70 75, what has been the demographic change in Hereford? Uh, if, if we went from a predominantly Anglo population, you know, very self-aware of their pioneer very recent you know pioneer heritage uh -huh. uh, tell us about kind of the shifting demographics as uh, mexican and mexican-american laborers uh, agricultural laborers move into the area and how does that start to un or shift the balance not necessarily necessarily balance of power but the demographic balance in the community which sure. by extension makes the aclu seem so scary sure sure yeah that's a great question um so during World War II, there was an Italian prisoner of war camp in Hereford, and um, very little has been written about this, or at least, you know, I think things that would be visible um, outside of this region. There have been a couple of master's theses and um, uh, maybe one book that's kind of old um, now that was published, I think, in the 80s or early 90s. But um, there was an Italian POW camp, and um, what a lot of the Italian POWs were used for was farm labor, regionally they were essentially hired out to local farmers and that that's an interesting story in its own right because these um um fascist pow's were um uh essentially apparently really good workers right you know um, protected these farmers there weren't any problems or any of that kind of stuff and so by early 1946 the last of the Italian POWs in Hereford were gone. They had all been, you know, the war was over and they'd all been um, released and sent home. Um, in the late 40s, there was a real push to keep agribusiness going in Hereford and in other communities in the Texas panhandle, which it, you know, it it's a really recent history, you know. I mean, it's not like, you know, Southern California where you've got, you know, um, Sunkist or whatever, going back to, I think, like the 1870s or 1880s, right? Or even South Texas, where you've got um, 
grapefruit and oranges, that stuff that I wrote about in my first book in the very early part of the 20th century. Because we should note that a large portion of the surrounding area for a long time was the XIT ranch. Like, That's right. I, I yeah. think what was the biggest cattle ranch in the nation or one of the biggest. And it, at what year is that then broken up and starting to be sold off to individual ranchers or then eventually individual farmers that kind of starts this new agribusiness in the region like that that's yeah, all so a much I, it's kind of a more recent development than we had seen at other kind of similar rural places in the west yeah so it's a um a lot of family farms that are started in the early 20th century and um the texas panhandle was you know obviously with the dust bowl very much a part of like the wheat boom and you know all of the problems that were going with agriculture um in the 20s and in the 30s, right, which, of course, that needs to be accounted for in its own right as something that's going to, you know, essentially stunt commercial agribusiness for a couple of decades, right? Um, but you're right. It's, um, you know, you don't see the sort of, you don't see the growers cooperatives and the real push toward corporate ag until like the late 40s and early 50s. And that's, I think, an earlier story in most other areas in the West. And um, other parts of the country. And so, so that's the context into which we see the migrant labor now. Come. Yes, so, exactly. So, yeah, sorry. Yeah. Sorry to detour you there. So no, no, you're yeah. fine. Yeah, yeah, no, you're perfectly fine. So um, anyway, so the reliance upon um, um, agriculture, uh, Mexican and Mexican American workers gets so strong that by the 1960s, Hereford is a majority minority town. Right. And so um in that sense, um, you know, there is, you know, one could make the case that the story of agriculture or civil rights or racial oppression is kind of unique in a way. And I, you know, I mean, all local histories are distinctive, but at the same time, this is a familiar story, right? Where you've got um, um, people from Mexico or from the lower Rio Grande Valley who are coming in, um, who are getting poverty wages who are not treated well, right? Um, but for a wide variety of complicated reasons, the farm workers movement, which really kicks up with Cesar Chavez and the uh, the National Farm Workers Association in 1965, doesn't really touch the area at all. Um, right. So because I think because you know you see the you know the Del the Delano grape strike in the 60s. Um, there's the Star County strike in South Texas in 1966 um, and things that are going on in Arizona and other parts of the country. I think because that doesn't immediately come to Hereford in the 60s, there may have been this sense locally, well, you know, our people are happy or, you know, we're, you know, we treat them better than those other growers or whatever over there. I mean, you write about a sense of what you call regional exceptionalism. Yeah, yeah. They viewed themselves as a little bit different or. Yeah. Yeah, because look, yeah. look ten, 10 years ago, when other communities with similar demographics and businesses were, there's all this upheaval, we were, we've we been fine. There's so all this chaos. Yeah, yeah. We've we must been fine. be, we're special. Yeah, we've, we, yeah, exactly. And so, you know, anyone who comes in who represents that kind of outside threat, right, which is terminology that, you know, um, um, people who um, wanted to, wanted to um, mitigate the um, successes of the civil rights movement had used anyone who comes in representing an outside threat is going to have to be dealt with right um, in order to protect the community so it's a it, I think it was about you know in a way preserving a kind of a you know a culture a uniqueness that um, English-speaking people in Hereford um, 
thought was a very real thing but at the same time it's more than that you know i mean i do i do think that there was a real fear that um the economy is going to come crashing down. They're going to be students' rights cases in local schools. Kids aren't going to respect their parents. That kind of thing, right? So hence, everything falls get, apart. Everything falls apart. So let's get a let's get out ahead of the problem while we can. And um, Wayne unwittingly represented that problem. I mean, he was he was so naive to this stuff that when he started the local chapter of the ACLU <laughs> in Hereford, he went on the local radio station to say, hey, we've got this, yeah. we're going to have this meeting. Um, everybody likes civil liberties, right? So, you know, come on out and let's talk about this stuff. He had no idea what he was doing or the can of worms that he'd opened up. A and, little um, naive. Yeah. Super naive, right? And I, you know, I mean, I, um, I'm i 44. I mean, I can remember being 30. You're still a kid when you're 30, right? I mean, you're not... <laughs> Right. I mean, you're not, yeah. uh, I, I think you're, you know. Um, and he's excited. I, I mean, it's something that he's maybe sure. new in his life. He's passionate. Why, why wouldn't I share this, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. But one thing I think is really interesting about a lot of this is on the surface, so many of these things just seem like very partisan political. I guess maybe not partisan because we're still, we're just on the tail end of kind of this big party realignment. But yeah. at least these seem like very explicitly political things. But the way that you write about it, over and over again is that it was less about um uh you know the local elite you know working to get uh, woodward fired it was less about political ideology and more kind of was what you were just explaining this desire to protect a certain status quo yeah um which in this case happens to align with some political ideologies but that wasn't maybe the core uh, the core motivation sure and i you know i think that's ultimately what it you know what it means to be a conservative right if you get down to you know if you get down to sort of the nitty-gritty it's about sort of conserving the status quo yeah. right hence the hence the the name <laughs> yeah um I, you mentioned that you mentioned a few minutes ago about woodward seeming to have a real um a real big heart and you know, i just wanted to read two quick little passages that I think really demonstrate this well and maybe speak to, because I mean, the question I want to get to is like, so, you know, why does he get involved with the ACLU? Why does he take this up? Um, maybe because he was naive and he didn't realize how much trouble he was going to get into for it. But um, mm -hmm. so you open your book with a poem mm -hmm. written by one of his students, which is just, uh, it's, it's, I mean, it's not the greatest poetry on earth. But it, is, <laughs> it is so striking. So I want to read this quick little snippet from this poem uh, of one of Woodward's students who's really sad about him getting fired, and then a snippet from Principal Hughes. Okay. I'm <laughs> um, talking about these Mexican students. So this one student ta talking about Woodward writes, you listen to us as none have before. You help us out the very last core, to the very last core. Just the fact that he simply, he listened. He was uh -huh. interested in them. He um, had sympathy and empathy for them, something that apparently they weren't feeling elsewhere. That made yeah. him exceptional to them. Yeah, it really speaks to his character. And then here's what um, here's what you write about Hughes, who's the principal, who's the main kind of instigator of of the, this antagonism against Woodward and Woodward getting fired. You write Woodward recalled a conversation in which Principal Hughes told him that they're just Mexicans. They're never going to amount to anything. Just pass them and get them out of here. Mm -hmm. And I'm assuming it, get them back out into the fields. Maybe yeah, yeah. By extension. 
Oh boy. Um, yeah. What does this tell us about the social world in which Mexican or Mexican American youth or their parents um, were trying to navigate in this 1970s rural West Texas community? Wow. Um, I started out my career writing about migrant labor and um, doing this project has actually gotten me back into that, that research. Um, and um, it's really stunning, isn't it? Um, the, the San Jose labor camp, that's the name of the camp. And it was actual, actual barrack buildings from the Italian POW camp that were moved from another part of the moved to another part of the town for um, the Mexican and Mexican American families to live in. Um, there, there were some activists, and again, this isn't in, in the book, but there were some activists who said that the situation in Hereford and in the Texas panhandle for Mexican and Mexican Americans was worse than it was in places like the lower Rio Grande Valley, which were awful, um, that the working conditions were bad, that um, racism and intolerance were just terrible and in your face. And um, yeah, it's, it's difficult. It's difficult not to have a deep level of empathy for what those parents faced, right? Um, whether, you know, they were permanent residents of the town or whether they migrated and did backbreaking work out in the fields for, you know, um, I think, uh, gosh, um, a sack of like a 50, a 53 pound sack of onions in the late seventies in Hereford would have gotten you 40 cents, 45 cents, something like that. Right. Once it was done and that, you know, to, to think about what they experienced and then knowing that their children, you know, for whom they just want a better life, right. As any good parent, you want to see your kids go on and do you know, to, and do well and to exceed whatever successes you've had and avoid it, avoid whatever kind of troubles that you've had, um, to know that they, you know, could potentially have had racial slurs or epithets thrown at them in the school. Um, it's just heartbreaking. And, um, I think, I think that, you know, Wayne was someone who was obviously, um, attuned to that problem in particular right and one of the things that he he did tell me was that his students from the labor camp and their parents were among some of the nicest most hardworking, respectful people he had ever met in his entire life um but to yeah i mean to think about the level of poverty that they had to navigate and that um you know they were people who didn't have representation in the form of like a you know a viable labor union or um legal advocates or anything um it's just crushing and i think um you know you mentioned the you know you mentioned the the poem that was written by a, a young a middle schooler named Esmer, esmeralda esmeralda perales and um it's evidence of the fact that wayne like you were saying he was someone who stepped into the classroom and he connected to students simply by taking them seriously as people and talking to them and listening to them right and imagine so, so tying that into your question imagine being um you know a mexican an, you know an ethnic mexican student right whether you know whether your parents are from mexico or from the rio grande valley and you know here's a young anglo guy and he takes you seriously unlike the other the other teachers do i think that's you know that's part of the reason why he struck a chord with them but i you know i will say it wasn't just 
it wasn't just his Mexican and Mexican-American students. I mean, Wayne, um, I can't remember if I cited any of this or not, but um, he showed me some of his yearbooks from this time period and the students, you know, you can remember being in middle school, you know, you sign your friend's yearbooks and you write all these long notes and stuff. And all these kids had written him notes about how much they loved him and how great he was. I saw his teaching evaluations too, right? And there was even evidence from the administrators that the students respond so well to him. Um, he was just one of those, you know, he was one of those people who um, had a gift for for connecting, which is, of course, what makes for, uh, you know, we're both educators, what makes for great teaching, right, is an ability to connect with people on a human level. Um, so, yeah, um, but anyway, getting back to the original question about um, uh, the world that these people were navigating, I, you know, I would think that if you were out picking crops in Hereford, um, you know, these growers are making hundreds of thousands of dollars of dollars, right? Millions of dollars even um, uh, in certain respects. I, you know, I can't, uh, I can't point to like the financials to prove that, but you know, I mean, it's obvious. And to deal with those things on a local level and to see change taking place in California or in other parts of Texas or in other parts of the country, but to not, to not see that happening locally must have been crushing. Um, I, I can't imagine it uh, being any other way. And it seems that the other, the rest of the, you know, the Anglo locals awareness of how they had escaped some of, I guess, in their view, escaped some of those troubles in the laborers views that they had not benefited from those, you know, those disruptions, like the arrival of the, that's why the arrival of the ACLU is uh, suddenly so shocking. Uh-oh. You know, yeah. this is a harbinger of the troubles that we've so successfully avoided. Yeah, and yeah. Maybe it's finally come for us. I mean, you well, might... you know, in in a funny way, I think they were actually, um, I think that they were kind of right in a weird way. You know, um, again, this isn't in in the book, but in 1978, um, rural legal aid shows up, right? So you've got lawyers who are advocating for um, um, the population of the San Jose labor camp and filing lawsuits about discrimination and um, unfair employment practices and all kinds of stuff. And then um, the Texas Farm Workers Union does arrive in the late 70s and there's a strike in the um, the Hereford onion field. So um, again, there's a bit of a, a bit of an irony there. You know, they were um, Wayne's antagonists in this book were wrong to do what they did. Um, on a moral level, but also on a constitutional level, right? I, I mean, a, a district judge um, found them guilty of um, violating Wayne's um, First and Fourteenth Amendment rights under the U.S. Constitution, um, but they were right in the sense that the outside world was um, was going to come in, and uh, eventually it did. And and Woodward, I mean, as you write, he was just kind of the stand-in yeah, for all yeah. of these all these troubles which had been brewing everywhere else. Yeah, and, yeah, and this was like. It was like a tipping point, I think, yeah. in this case. Yeah, it really was. So he, right as he, he opens this ACLU chapter, he uh, may perhaps foolishly goes on the radio <laughs> or it really kind of publicizes it. And and also um, some students, you know, a, a couple points kind of around the same time, ask some questions and he provides them with some ACLU literature. He shares with them like, oh, yeah, there's a meeting on this day, you know, come check it out if you want, which is not necessarily uncommon at the school. There are other, even more explicitly political organizations at school, Young Democrats or, Correct. or others that are allowed to, you know, they're, they're, here's these community events. Mm -hmm. um, 
but uh, he is technically not fired, but his contract is not renewed. Correct. And the reason that they say is he was distributing materials in class that had not been approved by the administration. Right? Correct. That's their pretense. Yeah. So you have, you have a couple of full chapters you know, that go through like all the depositions and the, you know, the, the courtroom <laughs> yeah. trial and all this stuff. But so how does he win against that? What does he prove to the contrary? So his lawyer was a man named Robin Green, um, who I also got to interview for the book, who sadly just passed away um, not even a year ago, I don't think. And uh, he was a young civil rights attorney who was um, in Amarillo at the time and eventually um, wound up in Lubbock, which is about 120 miles south of here. And what they prove in court was that um, the school administrators fired him specifically because of his involvement with the ACLU, or I should say you're, you're right to point, to point this out that um, school teachers were on year to year renewable contracts, right? It's sort of like being an assistant professor and not having tenure yet, right? Like um, you get a new contract every year and that was a way for the, the school district to protect itself against, you know, a teacher who they might want to get rid of. So um, his contract I guess you could say he was given a non-renewal in his view because he was involved with the ACLU. And then the argument was made by the school board and by the attorneys that it was because you didn't follow certain school policies, right? And he was never um, one of the things that Wayne and um, his lawyer, Robin Green, argued was that he was never given sort of like clear communication as to how he could improve it was like all what's sort the of procedure vague. he should have used then yeah there was no procedure there was yeah. no clear yeah no clear sense of a broken policy and um so he sued them in the fall of 1975 and they were able they were able to prove in a bench trial right so there was no jury it was just them and the judge um the judge um coincidentally his last name was also woodward but they yeah. weren't related halbert o woodward um, for a second but, i i read it, i was like wait a second and i had to go yeah back that's right yeah. <laughs> there's no nepotism or anything that was at work yeah um woodward was in in fact um i can remember um robin green telling me was a noted um conservative judge he wasn't known for you know having any um, um any sympathies toward um liberalism or civil rights at the time but um at any rate um I, without getting too much into the weeds um what the depositions and the court documents essentially show is that the um defendants who were in this case the school district were were first of all fully unprepared um, I think that they hadn't been challenged in this kind of way before by a teacher, right, who had a, you know, who had any type of a case at all. Um, so, A, they were fully unprepared and their attorney, who was a known attorney in Hereford, the main one was a guy named Ernest Langley, um, just didn't, he didn't take any of this seriously at all. He thought, oh, well, we'll just, you know, we'll cite a few things. Um, the judge will agree with us and that'll be that. Um but they proved beyond any shadow of a doubt that there wasn't a policy violation. Um, at one point, there was a vague reference to um, the teacher's handbook saying you have to get written materials that are um, reproduced um, for students pre-approved. Um, that wasn't true. It was just a it was a fabrication. Um, and that any or any other sort of justifications that um, Wayne was a problem, that he wasn't. Um, sticking to curriculum um that he 
um, was disloyal to the administration and was sort of sowing chaos locally. None of it was was true. And I think um, uh, so. Yeah, I mean, I you know, I I I think that that's that that essentially encapsulates what happened. And I you know, I think as these lawsuits often go once they once they the school district appealed to the um the fifth circuit court of appeals in new orleans um they realized that the appeals court was gonna um go against them that they didn't want to drag this out and spend any any more money so that they they settled um so in in a way i you know wayne he wins the case but you know i i didn't want the story to be um you know overly um um sort of victorious or totalizing at the end i mean he wins the case but he never teaches again, which was something that he loved to do. He winds up becoming a nurse practitioner and having a, you know, a good career in healthcare. Um, so he wins, but ultimately, I think, you know, at the same time, he he kind of loses. Um, uh, one of the chapters in the book, Robin Green, um, came out and said, there will be not winners down the line, which I used as one of the titles for a chapter. And I, he was really right. I mean, essentially, no one won. Yeah, everyone yeah. loses. <laughs> yeah, so that's right. Yeah. Well, maybe we... You know, kind of for the last segment here, I want to kind of zoom out and think about what this story teaches us about, you know, the development of cons- conservatism in the rural West, and how this compares to other regions in the in the rural West specifically. Um, mm-hmm. I kind of have two questions. The first, um, you write. Um, I'm sorry to quote you, your own words. I know that's never fun. Um, no, it's okay. You write, Woodward's case was evidence of a growing malady of American political culture as the 20th century raced to a close. So so what does this case, what's that bigger picture that this is revealing for us, especially in reference uh, to how the rural West kind of plays into this? Yeah, I think um, I think that what this case shows is that... Um, people who you know either identified as liberals or you know with the sort of the you know the um the growing sort of liberal democratic consensus starting in the 30s and um people who would have been like you know in the case of the texas panhandle conservative democrats at that time who eventually you know by the 70s really have fled to the republican party by the late 70s i guess really um that they they didn't understand each other you know they were um they were in essence speaking different languages about what it meant to be an american right like i mean in in wayne's case what it meant to be an american was respect for the constitution um respect for the diversity of people um uh the um you know res- respect for um, um people's rights um, and fighting against the suppression of individual rights. Whereas, you know, for another group, um, what it meant to be an American was more of a, you know, um, a, you know, what, you know, what we would then call a conservative view, right? Like, you know, you respect um, authority, you respect authority. You say the pledge of allegiance, you go to church on Sunday, um, you're a good member of your community and all of those are good things. Right. But, um, what but anything in, outside that mold is aberrant, is dangerous, is un-American. Right. Yeah. It, it has to be dealt with. And so, um, you know, when when Wayne becomes, I think, more aware of um, um, the fact that he is essentially persona non grata and that they're that the school administrators were willing to do 
anything to get rid of him. Um, he started to see, I think these different, like, it's like they came into sharper relief. Right. And what, you know, one of the, one of the things that I think is instructive about this story is that, you know, here we have essentially the culture wars taking place in rural America. And a lot of this story felt awfully familiar to me, um, you know, with what we have, you know, what we have going on in the, in the 21st century, that there are, uh, you know, um, in the, um, the conclusion of the book, I call it the two Americas, right? Herford and the two Americas, that there's this, um, there's this sense that America should be something that it isn't. And um, if you're a part of the other side, I don't like you and don't want to be involved with you. And that to me, you know, that is what I took out of this story. And um, I, you know, I've, I've heard from a couple of other people, you know, I mean, there's always this long lag in reviews when you publish an <laughs> academic book. So there haven't been any, any official reviews yet, but um, I've heard from a number of people who've read the book that um, a lot of this felt very familiar with their own backgrounds in rural spaces in the West. I had a person from Iowa who said, who told me that I'm someone from uh, Colorado who said the same kind of thing. And I think, I think that's really what's different, I guess, from looking at the culture wars in rural America versus, you know, the more typical story that I think we get in history, which is things that happened in cities and sit-ins and college campuses and, and all that kind of stuff. It just, um, it looks much different. Um, I do want to say though, you know, um, as depressing as all of that sounds, um, you know, interestingly, I've gotten um, I've gotten messages from from people who were essentially on the other side in Wayne's case who have felt bad. Um, I had, a, for example, there was a newspaper editor in Hereford, a guy named um, Bobby Templeton, who I never found when I was doing this book. I didn't know what had happened to this guy. I knew he was about Wayne's age and. Um, I was in class one day and I, you know, I looked at my phone at the end of class and I had a Facebook message from him. And so I opened it up and I read it and he said, you know, I read your book. Um, I don't necessarily agree with all of the ways that I was portrayed. However, I'm going to reach out to Wayne and apologize to him. And he did that. So this was one of his chief detractors, right? Who are not, not necessarily one of his chief detractors, but um, someone who had, who had published some things in the paper that were, critical of him and that Wayne had had a problem with and he'd he'd written back against. So um so yeah, I mean I think um I think interestingly, you know, again sort of going back to an earlier part of the conversation, um this is a story that this individual story is in its own way still playing out because um some of the actors are still alive. And I don't know. I mean I, you know, I, I get accused of being overly optimistic and sort of naive all the time, but, you know, I mean, that gives me a, you know, a reason to hope, right. That people can, you know, people can eventually maybe as they get older, sort of see past um, some of the mistakes that they've made in the, you know, in the, in the judgments, uh, in the judgments of others. Um, and I, you know, again, I, you know, one of the things that I, you know, I, I wanted, I wanted to take seriously in the book is, um, you know, I wanted this to be a, a fair book that's, you know, sort of took a, a step back and um, told the story in an objective way. And, um, you know, I think um, I, I think um, when certain people in Hereford said that, you know, liberals kind of condescended to them, 
um, that kind of makes sense. You know, I mean, I think that that's, I think there's some, uh, uh, there's some reality to accusations like that. Right. Um, but yeah, it's, um, it's a relevant, it's a relevant story. in in that regard, I mean, I think the, you know, the fracturing of America that political historians have written about, um, you know, taking place in the middle of the 20th century, I think, uh, yeah, I think, um, Obviously, I interpreted the, you know, the documents and told the story, but it just, um, as I was doing it, it just all felt so familiar to what we're seeing in the country today. Um, and uh, I, you know, I don't know if it's um, a Western thing necessarily, right, or um, a small town kind of thing versus, you know, like a sort of an, a rural versus urban kind of dynamic, Um but um, I think because we have a lot of distended space uh, in the American West and a lot of small towns, um, the um, the sort of the anger and the frustration and a lot of the things that happened in Hereford in the early or in the mid 70s, um, I would imagine if you, um, you know, if one were to dig around in other towns, you'd see a lot of really familiar stuff um, that looks similar. Man, another point you make is that by telling this kind of culture wars story in a small rural town there's things that you saw i think you call them unappreciated elements of uh -huh. of modern conservatism that yeah. that weren't in quite as stark of relief perhaps when the culture war stories are told on call you know college campuses and berkeley and and all of that that just in a a small rural town you, you saw things in greater contrast perhaps yeah yeah i mean i think um um it's it's hard i think it's hard not to sympathize with people who are afraid um and um a lot of the the fear of what was going on in the rest of the country even though um it was expressed in you know not across the board but in a number of specific instances in this case um through hate and intolerance um um, the, the, the fear that people had is something that, um, yeah, I think, um, I think you see it better when you're in an area that, um, leans more sort of conservative in its politics rather than like a, you know, a city on the West coast that might lean more, you know, to the, toward the liberal side or the East coast or whatever. Um, I think it's no, you know, in other words, it's no coincidence that a number of people in Hereford, when this was going on, told Wayne, you know, you belong in New York or California, you don't belong here, you know, hence the oh. title, you will never be one of us, yeah. even though, you know, ironically, he sort of was yeah. one of them, right? So that sort of, that sort of sense of belonging got interpreted through like a lens of fear and um, not understanding or being comfortable with A, where the country is going and B, where their town that they their community that they loved was going. And, you know, of course, that's something that I think should be um, uh, um, relatable to people that you should care about your community. Um, yeah. I think there are some unique Western elements to this. You know, it's a region uh, that is, I think, uniquely prone to dramatic fast change, be it because of like the boom and bust cycles of certain industries sure. that, that especially places in the, the rural or remote West often depend on. Um, uh, rapid, dramatic demographic changes, not just in the rural West, but in the urban and suburban West. Uh, mm -hmm. You know, all these dynamics about uh, what a community used to be, what it is now, and possibly what it's becoming, uh, that rings 
that rings familiar to a lot of other Western, a lot of other Western stories, um, many of which are like a hundred years earlier. But here sure. we're we're seeing it in the seventies, and with some of the you know books we've had on the podcast, um, talking that are even more contemporary than nineteen seventy five, uh, I think still ring true, continually. We're sure, still, sure. We're still wrestling with this. Yeah, and I you know I think that um, you know to me at least this is. Um, evidence of the importance of individual and community-based history, right? And sort of doing a, um, you know, doing local history or doing, you know, I know it's, you know, not really in fashion in the field, but micro history, if that's what you want to call it, right? Mm -hmm. Is that, um, you know, there are larger lessons that people can draw from. And so, you know, even though, you know, someone may not have been to Hereford, they might look at, you know, a you know, again, like a small town in Colorado or somewhere in the Midwest or, or whatever, and read this book and say, okay, you know, I understand why things played out back in the seventies or the sixties or the eighties or whatever the way that they did. That's yeah. my hope anyway. Yeah. Well, um, Tim, what are you working on? We don't need to wrap up, but what, what are you working on next? You already mentioned a couple of times that this is, this project has kind of naturally segued into something else. Yeah. Which is something that, you know, something that I didn't see coming. And so, um, yeah, when I was finishing research on the book, um, I really, because I was so hyper-focused on, you know, I mean, of course, you know, the larger context of, is there, but, you know, really in terms of the research, I was so hyper-focused on like 1975 to 77 in Hereford. Um, I wanted to know what came next. And so, you know, in the town itself. And so um, uh, had an opportunity to work on a book chapter um, and what the editor told me, it's not out yet, but what the editor told me she wanted was something on the racialization of labor in um, rural Texas. And I think they were, uh, I think she was thinking more of my first book, Blood Oranges, which is on citriculture and um, um, internal colonialism in, in the lower Rio Grande Valley. But um, I thought, well, you know, here's this sort of side story in Hereford that can work with that, you know, in terms of like Italian workers or Italian POWs being used and then a, you know, a deliberate transition to Mexican and Mexican American labor. And so um, when I started doing the research for that and found out about this onion strike in Hereford in 1980, a group showed up that I was already very familiar with called the Texas Farm Workers Union. Um, and I felt a little silly for not knowing this because the the founder of the Texas Farm Workers Union was a guy named Antonio Orendine, who was the original secretary treasurer of the National Farm Workers Association. So he was there with Dolores Huerta and Cesar Chavez when the farm workers movement was started. And I wrote my master's thesis on him. And I had no idea. <laughs> I wrote my master's thesis on this schism that he had had with Cesar Chavez um, in the 60s and 70s and you know him wanting to bring or Orendine wanting Chavez to bring the the California farm workers movement to Texas in the border and Chavez not doing it and then you know like in a lot of social movements the two have a fight Orendine breaks off and does his own thing and so here he shows up I never published any of that so here he shows up at the end of my now second book um, a person who, sadly, he passed away a few years ago, but a guy who I knew personally, personally, who I'd had lunch with and, you know, no members of his family and had thought, um, 
you know, that I really needed to do a project on him, but what I just, I didn't feel ready, you know, six or seven years ago. So anyway, long story short, um, the, the next project is essentially to write the Texas UFW book, you know, about 10 to 15 years ago, there was this explosion of works on the United farm workers. Um, and there's still some good new things that come out now, mostly that focus on California, but, um, I want to take that old that old research, which was what motivated me to write my first book on the Rio Grande Valley, and um, to write to write about um, farm labor activism in South Texas and in West Texas in the '60s, '70s, and '80s, and to try to to try to bring um, Texas labor activism um, under the larger umbrella of the sort of the new UFW history. So that's book three, and of course, you know, I mean, some of this is. Um, about being practical, right? Like, I mean, we're always so busy in our careers. It's like, you know, I mean, if I'm kind of impatient, right? Like, I don't want to work on something forever. I want to get deeply into it and get it done. And this is something that I think that I can do, um, you know, and do in a sort of a reasonable amount of time, however many years that winds up being. Um, so yeah, so that's, that's what's next. So we'll see. So, you know, did South Texas at first, West Texas, and now the next uh-huh. book will sort of be beyond both yeah that's great tim well thanks um, congrats on this book um thank you look look forward to to the next one i appreciate it brennan thanks so much yeah this has been a lot of fun thank you thanks well i've really i've really enjoyed the conversation and i you know uh like i said i've been uh um you know ever since you mentioned having me on i've been really really excited to have this conversation with you so um i really appreciate it thanks a lot tim take care you too thanks a lot Thank you so much for listening. I hope you'll subscribe and listen every month. Please leave us a review on whatever app or platform you're listening through. Or follow us on Facebook at Writing Westward Podcast or on Twitter at Writing West, where you can get updates and leave comments. Writing Westward is a production of the Charles Rudd Center for Western Studies at Brigham Young University. We're an interdisciplinary research center that supports academic research and the promotion of public understandings about the North American West. We host regular public lectures, which we live stream, have an annual funding cycle with award, grant, and fellowship categories that nearly anyone researching or working on the region from any disciplinary approach or towards any final product can apply. Learn more at redcenter.byu.edu. That's R-E-D-D Center. Our theme music was provided by local Utah composer Micah Dahl Anderson. Find him at Micah, D-A-H-L, Dahl, Anderson, with an O, dot com. I'll put a link in the episode description. My name is Brendan Rensink. I serve as the podcast host, producer, and just about everything else. So you can direct any praise or critique my way. I'm author and editor of a number of books on the West, borderlands, native peoples, genocide studies, religion, and the environment. Recently, my book, Native But Foreign, Indigenous Immigrants and Refugees in the North American Borderlands, published by Texas A&M University Press in 2018, won the Best Historical Nonfiction Book Award from the Western Writers of America. In an anthology I co-edited with P. Jane Hafen, entitled Essays on American Indian and Mormon History, published by the University of Utah Press in 2019, won the Metcalf Best Anthology Book Prize from the John Whitmer Historical Association. Here at the Red Center, I'm also general editor and project manager of a great digital history, uh, public history project named Intermountain Histories. It's a free mobile app and website, uh, intermountainhistories.org, that curates student-researched and written micro-histories of the region, complete with archival photos, bibliographies, and more. 
To contact me about the podcast, my own research, or anything else, head to bwrensink, that's R-E-N-S-I-N-K, dot org, or follow me on Twitter at Brendan W. Rensink. Until next month, be well, be curious, and be kind. Cheers. Cheers.